experts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, here at the XML Financial Group. Glad you could join me today. We're going to jump right into it because I have a lot of ground to cover. And I want to spend a minute right off on the planning side of things. And I think this is really, really important stuff. I've been carrying around a survey done by Schwab. It's a little dated, but I think overall, the ideas still hold true. According to Schwab, only 25% of Americans have a written financial plan. And I would suspect that number is probably even a little high. And I think there's some good reasons for this. This is just my guess. But number one, well, it would be that most people feel that doing a plan isn't going to benefit them in any way. For a lot of folks, the plan is just trying to stay out of debt, right? We've all heard, seen the statistics on the number of people who are living paycheck to paycheck. They think that this planning stuff is just for the wealthy. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. In my opinion, a written plan can help just about everyone. And that's because I think people who have a written plan, they tend to have greater financial discipline and better money habits. Having a plan is like, having a workout buddy, right? It's Wednesday. I have to go meet so-and-so for a run around the park. You know, I can't bail on that because they hold me accountable. They keep me on track. A plan does the same thing. According to that Schwab poll, the planners versus non-planners, you guessed it, the planners are twice as likely to pay their bills and save every month as opposed to the non-planners. Frankly, I think some people are afraid. That's right. Afraid. It's like going to the doctor or the dentist. I I don't want to know. I don't want to know what's wrong. They don't want to make the choices, the lifestyle choices that might be necessary. You've seen it. People are going to practice avoidance, hoping the problem's going to go away and fix itself. They're going to stick their head in the sand. I could go on for an hour on why I think people don't plan. But the bottom line is you should have one. If you're going to build a house, well, you can get blueprints. If you're going to run a marathon, if you're crazy enough to do that, well, then you come up with a training plan. You just don't wing these things. And I would argue that planning for the future should be at the top of your list. And getting started isn't that hard. I can help you if you need it. You just need to take that first step. Some of you, some of you need a more comprehensive plan and others don't. Let's be clear here, participating in your, your company's 401k or starting an IRA, that's not a plan. It's a start, but it's not a plan. The basic idea is you want to find out where you are and get an idea of where you want to be in the future and then figure out how to get there. When we do it for our clients, we look at a number of different scenarios. You always have questions like, well, when do I take social security? Does this Roth conversion thing, does that make sense for me? Well, what, what if in retirement we move to a different state? We look at all those. Do you need a planner or an, or, or an advisor? Well, not necessarily. 
that's probably not what you expect to hear from an advisor like myself. But the reality is, is not everyone needs an advisor. If you love this stuff and you've worked in finance for a while, you may not need someone like me. If you're just starting out and you're saving and you're investing, you know, things can set on be set on autopilot, meaning you live within your means, you contribute to your 401, you build up your emergency savings, you do all those common sense type things. But as time goes on and things get more complicated, you might want to consider using an advisor. A good advisor who's working with you on the planning side as well as the investing side, they can be worth way more than the expense. That's what you're really seeking here is, is value. And I know a lot of folks say, I can just do it myself instead of paying someone. Instead of actually looking at the value that that person might provide. And I'll give you an example. I have a newer client. Uh, a few months ago, we did a plan for her. And during the planning, we saw that her mortgage rate was well above the going, the current rate that was out there. And since she was planning on living there in her, in her house for a long time, it made sense for her to refinance. And it turns out she did refinance and she saved herself a boatload in interest payments. Now, that doesn't show up on the bottom line of any statement, but it was a considerable amount of money that we saved her. You've heard of Vanguard, you know. The company started by legendary John Bogle, the founder, home of the index funds, do it yourself, right? Well, a study by Vanguard says an advisor can add about 3% a year in value. Again, doesn't always show up on the bottom line of your statement that you get every month. And think about that. Think about that for a second. That's Vanguard. Vanguard is saying an advisor can add around 3% a year. And that's a whole lot different than some big brokerage house saying it. Eh, that's just talking their book, right? No, this is Vanguard. And you know what? Morningstar basically says the same thing. And you can find their white papers online if you're interested in reading more about it. But they're telling you that an advisor can be well worth the money. But the, the, the real main point I'm trying to make here is that I believe that having a plan in place is going to help most of you out there. And once you have that plan, that's when you can start thinking about how to build a portfolio that really suits your needs. You're not just trying to beat the market or, or what have you. You need investments that go are going to suit you. Let's talk about some of these tools that might help you. When, when you're building a well-diversified portfolio. That's really what you want, a well-diversified portfolio. You're probably going to want to have some cash, some bonds, some stocks in it, maybe even some hard assets like gold or silver. But for today, I'm only going to focus on the stock portion, give you the tools that will help you there. We just don't have time to do everything. The stock side, well, that's what I love to do. Always have. It's been my hobby. It's my profession. I'm a conservative value investor, which basically means I'm cheap. I'm looking for good businesses run by good managers and the businesses are growing and I want them to sell for a reasonable price. I don't ask for much, right? That's how I suggest you approach your investments, at least most of your investments. I want you to think of it as if you're buying a piece of a business or even the whole business. If, if you're sitting back and you're looking at it, if you're buying a business, what are you going to want? Well, you're going to want to make sure it's making money, right? 
you don't want to buy something that's going to require you to keep pumping money into it on a hope and a prayer that someday it'll make money for you. Well, as you build your portfolio of equities, I want you to ask yourself two questions. One, is this a good business? And two, what price do I want to pay for it? Let me start with question number one. Is this a good business? And the only way you're going to know that is if you have some understanding of what it is. You don't want to buy something that you don't reasonably understand. Stay, stay within your area of competency. You probably understand what companies like Apple or Microsoft does, but there are other areas that you probably don't understand. When you look at a business, you want to make sure, first of all, that it has good end markets. What I mean by that is that there's a steady growing demand for their services or their products for the foreseeable future. For example, back in the early 1900s, probably wouldn't done you a whole heck of a lot of good to go out and buy the best buggy whip manufacturer, right? Because the product was about to become obsolete thanks to Henry Ford. That's why most value managers like things like financial stocks, the banks, insurance companies, like Berkshire's Geico Insurance, because they're not going away. Listen, I I don't know what you're going to be driving in 20 years from now, or maybe what will be driving you, but I'm willing to wager that you're still going to be paying on insurance on it. You also want a good, solid business that's being run by competent managers in the interest of shareholders. And that would be you. You're the shareholder. This is a hard thing to judge. Sometimes people get blinded by returns and they don't really see beyond that. In other words, managers are managing for the quarter, not for the long-term interest of the, of the overall business. So when you're doing your research, one of the things you have to do, in my opinion, it's an absolute must, you have to read the company's annual report. Actually, you should be reading the last five years worth of annual reports. And at the beginning of this annual report is a letter from the guy or gal that's running the company. And you want to compare what they're saying from year to year. You know, did one year, do they make a big promise or a big deal out of something? And then the next year, you just didn't hear anything about it. If you see those kind of inconsistencies, well, might be a red flag for you. Basically, what you're looking for is a business that's growing. That's imperative. It's got to be growing. A business that's providing a service or a product that's not going to go away anytime soon. And the business is run by good managers in your interest. So let's say you found this company. You found a company that you're interested in. Now you have to answer that second question. And the second question is really a bit harder. Well, a lot harder to answer. What price do I want to pay for this great business that I found? And there's no magic bullet here. You can't just say, I'm going to pay less than 10 times earnings for this business. Because what works well in valuing one business may not work so well for another. So let me break out the toolbox here and start giving you some tools that you can use to value stocks. And probably the one that you hear the hear about most is the PE ratio, the price to earnings multiple, the price to earnings ratio. Basically, what that is is if a stock is trading at ten dollars and it earns a dollar a year per share, then the stock is trading at ten times earnings, right? Pretty simple. A tech stock 
is going to be valued differently than something like a consumer staple stock. So there is no right PE to target. Just don't say I'm only going to pay 10 times earnings for all my businesses. Just doesn't work. What I suggest is two things. First, look at what price people have been willing to pay for this business over, say, the last five or 10 years. And if it's trading below that long-term average, well, you might be onto something. You also want to consider a business's relative PE. So when the market goes up like it has, people are paying more for stocks. And when it goes down, and eventually it will, then they'll be paying less for it. A relative PE lets you adjust for that. As I said, there's no right multiple of earnings to pay. I would argue you should pay more for higher quality, more predictable businesses than for the low quality, under uh, unpredictable businesses. That's for sure. Sometimes you may not even want to look at PE because it's meaningless. And a good example of that would be when you're looking at the REIT, so the Real Estate Investment Trust. A lot of folks want hard assets now because they're worried about inflation and they're turning to the REITs. And the reason why you don't look at PEs here is because of accounting standards. REITs depreciate the properties or the buildings that they own, just like you would your rental home. And we all know that over the long term, these properties aren't declining in value. They're actually growing. So for REITs, you want to look at something like cash flow. A better metric, I think, is funds from operations or FFO or even the adjusted funds for operation. Now, speaking of cash, one of my favorite things to look at is free cash flow. That's right. Say it with me. Free cash flow. Cash. Free cash flow is what some people refer to as owner's earnings. Like I said earlier, you don't want to buy a business that isn't making you money. And I'm going to show you a a real easy way how you can find out if a company is generating free cash flow. So you found this great company. Well, go to their website, pull up their annual report, which I want you to read anyhow. And from there, or you can look at their 10K. And from there, you want to look at something called their consolidated statements of cash flows. And this is what you do to come up with your free cash flow calculation calculation. So write this down. You take the net income, you add back in the depreciation and amortization because those are, aren't cash charges. And then you subtract out the capital expenditures. And I like to use a five-year average. If you do that, if you work the numbers, you'll see what companies are generating excess cash that can be used to return to the shareholders through things like dividends, stock buybacks, reducing debt, or just to further invest in the business. Those are all good for me as the shareholder. And you can go another step farther if you want, and you can look at free cash flow yield. A lot like the PE, you just take the free cash flow and you divide it by the stock price. I know I've given you a lot here, but let me take, uh, let's take a look at one last tool that you can use. It's usually most effective for financials like the banks. Doesn't work so great for asset light businesses like the tech stocks, right? They don't own a lot of heavy, heavy machinery, things like that. It's book value. 
basically all the assets get get added up and all the liabilities get subtracted out. Pretty simple. When you do that, you end up with book value. That's how much the company's worth. If it goes bankrupt and they have to liquidate everything, well, then you should know about what you should get, theoretically. But let's face it, if you're a railroad and you go under and you're trying to sell off 100 locomotives, it might be a little hard. And you most certainly won't get the price that you were probably expecting. But I think book value is handy for things like the banks and the insurance companies, the heavy industrials, not so great for things like the tech stocks, as I said. If you even want to take this a step farther, you can look at tangible book value. That basically wipes out the effect of goodwill and other non-cash items. So there you have it. A number of ways you can use to value a stock. As I said, there is no right way. There is no one way. There's no magic bullet. You just have to do your homework. And that means working the numbers. You have the PE ratio, you have the relative PE. You could look at a company on a cash flow basis, free cash flow, or look at it from book value. Those are some of the metrics I use when I'm valuing stocks, and I hope you find them useful too. But the main point of today's conversation is, the main takeaway I'd like you to have is have that plan in place. Know where you are, get an idea of where you want to be in the future, and find out what kind of portfolio you need to get you to where you want to be. Okay, that's all we have time for today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I hope everyone has a great 4th of July. And until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. This is Eric Whiteman. This is Common Sense Investing, and we're done. Those of the hosts that may not necessarily be those of XML Financial Group. Information provided should not be construed as personalized investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or engage in a particular investment strategy. You should consult your personal financial advisor before investing to make sure an investment is appropriate for your situation. Furthermore, this information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax or legal advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific situation with a qualified tax or legal advisor. Investing strategies such as asset allocation, diversification, or rebalancing do not assure or guarantee better performance and cannot eliminate the risk of investment losses. There are no guarantees that a portfolio employing these or any other strategy will outperform a portfolio that does not engage in such strategies. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.